Organic Dope. Welcome back, guys. TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. Welcome to the Ape Academy Podcast. Act, protect, engage. I'm your host, Mr. Chase H. I'm the CEO of Ape Defensive Solutions, the parent company to the Ape Academy Podcast. Welcome. Welcome back. Today's episode is entitled Battlefield Bloodlines. Battlefield Bloodlines. Okay, we are talking about the evolution of the AR-15 sporting rifle, but the story begins on the battlefield of Korea. All right. Every weapon has a lineage. So the M16 is the granddaddy to the AR-15 civilian sporting rifle. (laughs) We need to talk about the M16 also. So. We're leading up to the M16, right? The final product is the civilian version of the AR-15, which I don't think we really need a podcast about. Because if we study the battlefield evolution of this platform, we'll understand why it is the way it is, okay? So we're starting off with the M1 Garand in Korea. The M1 Garand and the M1 Carbine, all right? That was the great, great, great granddaddy. <laughs> All right. So today's sponsor is Ape Defensive Solutions. Please follow our new IG page, our new IG page, a.p.e Academy Podcast. All right. We're also on Twitter at A underscore defensive. We're on Facebook, Ape Defensive Solutions, and we're on TikTok at Ape academy pod all right i'm doing all this new stuff i'm trying to branch out since the powers that be the powers that be at instagram decided to disable our thirty thousand followers strong main page which was a blow but we're not going to stop we're going to keep going keep going strong all right so where does the story begin it begins on the battlefield of the korean peninsula all right in the 1950s Most historians will point to the Korean conflict as the turning point, right? As the turning point when it comes to the U.S. Army properly equipping its infantry soldiers, all right? It's grunts. It's knuckle draggers. The infantry, when they fought the North Vietnamese, not the North Vietnamese, the North Koreans, And the Chinese Communist forces, they found themselves outmanned, outgunned, and overwhelmed in many battles. Okay. And at the time, the U.S. grunts were armed with the World War II era M1 Garand and M1 carbines. So these were battle-tested platforms proven in combat across Europe and against the Japanese in the Pacific theater. So the army was very, very confident in these weapons coming into the Korean conflict. They had no reason to doubt them, right? However, their enemies 
in the Korean War were a lot different than the Nazis. They were a lot different than the Japanese. They fought differently. They were armed differently. And remember, technology always advances. So it, it advances at warp speed in times of war. So you might fight an enemy five years ago, and they're not the same as they are now, as they are today, right? Because technology moves so quickly. So this is what the U.S. found themselves. They actually found themselves behind the power curve, which is kind of hard to believe concerning how much of an industrial powerhouse that, you, that the United States is. It's hard to kind of envision us as the lesser armed, like the unprepared army, but that's what we were. We were unprepared. The M1 semi-auto rifle, it weighed nine and a half pounds, which is pretty heavy. It was 43 inches long, and it relied on a block eight-round clip, literally a clip. I'm not using this term incorrectly. It was literally a clip, an eight-round clip of 30-06 caliber bullets. So these are big old bullets. These are hunting rounds. All right, they can freaking drop a moose. So it was kind of overkill a little bit for the time, concerning who they were fighting. Um, the 30 6 was a powerful and an accurate caliber, but even that was no match for the sheer numbers of the enemy. So the Chinese would fight with human waves. They would throw wave after wave of screaming soldiers at you. Just bodies, right? So we would mow down the first wave, mow down the second row, and they would just keep coming, climbing over their comrades, right? And eventually they would break the lines and it would be hand-to-hand. -hand. And those big old heavy, clunky, long M1 Garands were not the best when it comes to hand-to-hand -hand combat, right? They were a little too heavy, and the problem was you couldn't, you couldn't produce a high enough volume of fire to deal with those horde attacks, right? On the other hand, the other weapon that they had, the M1 Carbine, was much lighter, right? It was perfect size. It was light. It weighed under six pounds. It had pretty good capacity at 15-round clips. But the problem was it was only 30 caliber. So it was light. It was compact. It had pretty good capacity for the time. But the caliber just was not stopping anybody. So the Army, and when I use the term Army, I really mean military. I just keep going back to Army. So just when you hear army, just think U.S. military, right? The army was like between a rock and a hard place. Like even our light weapon doesn't have the punching power. Our powerful weapon is too big and too bulky and too slow. So what are we going to do? A trained soldier could only shoot 50 rounds a minute with the M1. And this is not nearly enough, right? That's not enough rounds downrange. That's not enough of a impact against the horde mass suicide attacks of the enemy at the time. Similar tactic that the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese used against the Americans in Vietnam. Except for we were more prepared. We had a much better weapon than we had in Korea. Lessons learned. Hard lessons learned. Hard lessons learned were hard lessons were learned, I should say, I'm sorry, in Korea. The government wanted a 30 caliber rifle cartridge since it was used to it, right? They were stubborn. Remember, a lot of soldiers at the time, the brass, right, the upper management, as we call it in the civilian world, they were World War II veterans, right? Some of them probably fought in the Great War. 
right? If you were born in 1900, in Korea, you're only like 53, 54, maybe 60 years old, like the top generals. So they remember the first war in the trenches, right, in Western, in Western Europe. So they're super old school, really set in their ways. And to be honest, they really had no reason to doubt the weapons that we came into Korea with because they had won two wars, right? They had saved Europe twice. So I'm pretty sure, you know, and I understand that they trusted their own judgment and they trusted the weapon systems that they had at the time, but you got to look at the results, right? The modern battlefield is not the same as fighting the Nazis or fighting the Japanese or fighting the Austrians in West, on the Western Front. It's not the same, right? So we had to adapt and adjust with the times. And it's hard sometimes for a big organization like the U.S. Army or the U.S. Marines to kind of change their ways because they're really set in them. It's hard to teach an old dog new tricks, right? So they learned really hard lessons. They wanted to stick with the 30 caliber, though. But at the time, there's a new round being developed, and it was called the 308 Winchester. And the 308 was pretty similar. It offered a lot when it when compared to the 30-06 round, right? The 308 had a shorter case length, at a slightly flatter trajectory, and had the same punching power and muzzle velocity as the 30-06. So it was very similar. It was similar in many ways, and the caveat was it was lighter. So that's what the army was really looking for, right? So the soldier really didn't lose any firepower at all with the switch from the 30 out 6 to the 308 Winchester. What happened next? The military decided to, op to open up contracts, right? They wanted to take submissions for a new battle rifle. They wanted people to compete, manufacturers, designers, to submit their prototypes for testing, right? The Army needed a new battle rifle, right? They had to answer a few critical questions. One, what is effective range? What does it mean for a caliber to be effective, right? So one, what is effective range? And two, what does it mean for a caliber to be effective? What does effective mean? For some people, effective is I can shoot 100 rounds a minute. For other people, it's like, well, I can I could take 10 well-aimed shots and kill a man with each shot. So. The army, the military, they had a lot of really important decisions to make for the future of their soldiers, the future of warfare, right? In, 19, in 1938, there is an organization that formed that proved to be a crucial player during this time. They were called the Alberdeen Proving Grounds Ballistic Research Laboratories, or BRL. And what the BRL did, what BRL did was analyze the lethality of ammunition. They looked at mass, they measured velocity, they looked at muzzle energy. This is cutting edge stuff at the time. This is really, really cool science, brand new stuff in the 50s. They actually were formed in the 30s, but they really came to prominence in the 50s, right? A bunch of scientists stunning ballistics, stunning the lethality of bullets. I, rem I remember I did a previous podcast talking about how the military adopted the 45 ACP. 
And back then in the early 1900s, late 1800s, do you know how they were testing their new bullets? They would shoot livestock, right? They would line up a bunch of cows and shoot them and see how effective the bullet was. Or they would shoot dead cows to see what the impact was like. So this was a freaking far cry from the old school, let me shoot a cow in the head test, right? This is science. This is data. This is hard data that the government can actually look at and they can actually see and measure it and compare it against each other, compare two calibers against each other. BRL engineer Donald Halls wrote a groundbreaking study entitled The Effectiveness Study of the Infantry Rifle, and it was released in March of 1952. Hall's study highlighted some important observations. One, the range of a battle rifle rarely exceeded 500 yards. So it's not like the average knuckle dragger, the average grunt is shooting anyone at over 500 yards. That's not to say that there's not going to be a designated marksman or a sniper in the unit that might have to shoot far. It's just that the average soldier is not going to shoot anyone over 500 yards, okay? Two, rifle fire was the most effective at about 120 yards or less. So we're talking killing range, right? Close range. You can look someone in the eye at 120 yards. That's when rifle fire was the most effective. Three, the most lethal bullet would be a high velocity but smaller caliber round. Because guess what? They're not measuring lethality with the one shot, one kill. They're, me they're measuring lethality in a bunch of different ways. How fast can you shoot them? What's the recoil like? What's the velocity like? Okay? What's the impact of the round on the human body? Backing up Mr. Hall's report was another report written by Johns Hopkins University's Operations Research Office, or ORO. And this was entitled operations requirements for an infantry hand weapon operations requirements for an infantry hand weapon it was called the Hitchman report and it published some groundbreaking info one military rifles were effective only at 300 yards or less and if I have any veterans out there listening you you know that in basic training you're not going to shoot anything over 300 yards this is for a reason right the Army, they actually looked at some of this research and decided to incorporate it into their training. So they know from these studies and from battlefield experience that 300 yards, that's when we're, start, we're starting to be more realistic, right? There's no need to shoot anything at 500 yards. Most kills occurred at less than 100 yards. So if you've ever been to basic, you do shoot a 50 meter target or 50, I'm sorry, 50 yard target or a 50, 50 yards or meters. One, a 50 meters, let's say 50 yard target and then a hundred yard target. All right. So there's close targets and they're medium targets and they're long range targets. Most kills in combat, right? They happen pretty close. You might get lucky, shoot someone from far away, but in, in warfare at that time, in that era, most kills were registered in 100 meters or less, 100 yards or less, whatever. Meters, yards, close. Small caliber, fast-moving ammo had the best performance, all right? The ORO also made two more important observations. One, 
Soldiers aimed only the first of their eight M1 rounds. Two, despite aim, wounds inflicted in battle were not concentrated in targeted body parts, but instead were spread randomly across the body. <laughs> so what does this mean? The first point, when there's a wave of Chinese communist soldiers running at you, you might aim the first shot, you take aim at center mass at a target, bam, you pull the trigger, it hits the target. After that, you're just trying to follow up, right? You're just trying to put rounds on anything, on anybody. That's why the wounds are spread, spread out across the body because it's really hard with adrenaline, with fear, with excitement, with all these distractions, explosions, screaming. It's really hard to maintain tight groupings because really you're firing out of panic, right? You're trying to put as many rounds on the enemy to kill them, to put them down, to stop their advance as you can, right? So you're really only aiming a few rounds. The rest of it is pure training, pure reaction, point shooting. No, I'm sorry, not point shooting, instinctive shooting. I'm sorry, reflexive shooting. Point shooting is when you aim, you point and aim. So that's the first shot. The first shot is point shooting. After that is instinctive shooting. You're aiming at something and you're just firing, 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 firing. And wherever the round hits, the round hits. It seemed as if the answer was not a high caliber, long range, highly accurate, instant man stopper. Rather, the answer was in a weapon that would fire a small caliber bullet with a high velocity lethality. So the key is a bullet that you can actually aim and hit what you're, what you're aiming at, but it travels really, really fast out of the muzzle. So it has that punching power, but it reduces recoil so that you can actually put more effective rounds on target. This is where the M14 comes in, which really, this, this blows my mind. <laughs> Listen up. Despite the data supporting the effectiveness of the smaller calibers, the army resisted. They resisted the idea. Remember, we're talking about a bunch of old, crusty vets from the, fir the First and Second World War. So they got what, <laughs> you know, they're fighting with what they're used to. They got what they want already, and they don't want to change. Sometimes it takes really hard lessons in blood to actually make changes. And unfortunately, these old timers, they weren't buying it right away. It took them a little while. So guess what? Rather than overhauling their weaponry, the army basically just remade the M1 into the M14. And all they did was make the M1 fully automatic. So all the M14 was, was a fully automatic version of the M1. Get this. So the M14 had selective fire. It had a 20 round box magazine and it was it was chambered in a new cartridge the 7.62 times 51 millimeter or the 308 commonly known as the 308 Winchester it was heavier <laughs> it was heavier and longer get this the heavy rounds meant that on full automatic a soldier could still really only aim the first round after that the recoil forced the muzzle off target because the bullet was so heavy and since it was on fully automatic you could not control it the recoil was too much the m14 was over 44 inches long and extremely heavy 
It weighed in at over 10 pounds fully loaded. So get this. So the original M1 Garand was 43 inches, 9.5 pounds. This is the Army's version of improvement. Let's make a weapon that's 44 inches long, so it's longer, 10 pounds instead of 9.5 pounds, and it's fully automatic, so it's even harder to control. It's even less accurate. So they literally made the M1 worse in every single way. Longer, heavier, and less accurate. Which is, of course, right, the Army's version of fixing a problem is making everything worse. The first M14s were distributed to the 101st Airborne in 1959. The Fleet Marine Force switched from the M1 Garand to the M14 in 1961. 1961. All right. We're doing a quick musical break. We'll be back in a flash, guys. Hope you're having a good time with us. Ape. Organic dope. We are back. We are back. We are finishing up the first part of our M16 series, Battlefield Bloodlines. Thank you for joining me. I hope you guys made it through the quick musical interlude and that you are joining me for the second part of the episode today. All right. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about how bad the M14 is. Now, it looked really cool. I love the look of it. So, the rifle served a brief tour of duty in Vietnam. Although it was unwieldy in the thick brush of Vietnam, the power of the 7.62x55mm NATO cartridge helped it penetrate the dense foliage at long ranges and hit hard. Listen to this. And this is what's pretty impressive about the M14. The M14 generated a muzzle velocity of 3,463 joules. That is massive, okay? So, what does that mean? That means the M14 could shoot through the dense jungle vegetation and still hit his target and still kill his target at really long ranges. So it could shoot through the trees, through the dense, you know, brush, leaves whatever of the of the uh, jungle and not lose almost any muzzle energy right so that's how powerful the weapon was right it was a very powerful weapon i'm not gonna lie the 308 is a great caliber it's a great man stopper the problem laid in the fact that it was fully automatic so there were several drawbacks first that really, really cool, sexy, traditional wood stock of the rifle, it tended to swell and deform due to the heavy moisture and the wet environment of the jungle. And this really affected the accuracy of the weapon. So that really dope, really sexy looking wood finish, it looks cool and it is cool in dry environments, but once you get, once you get into the wet, nasty, damp, just 
humid environment of the jungles of Vietnam, the wood absorbs all that moisture and it starts deforming. It starts becoming waterlogged, right? And the it becomes even heavier than the 10 pounds it is fully loaded. So that really throws off the accuracy. So you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, I set up my rifle the exact way I want it. And you put it to your shoulder and your buttstock isn't quite lining up like you want it to. It doesn't feel the same. It's, it's heavier. It's deformed. The wood's deformed. You got to adjust your arm position, your shoulder position. So it throws the accuracy off. And that was no good. You needed an a accurate, reliable weapon in the jungle. And because of the rifle's heavy round, it was considered almost uncontrollable in fully auto mode. So what happened? Most of the time, it was permanently set to semi-auto which defeated the entire purpose of the M14. The purpose of the M14 was to be a fully automatic version of the M1. But if you switch it to semi-auto, it's simply an, an M1. It's an M1 with less stopping power. Because the whole point was we wanted a round, right? The 308, it was slimmer than the 30i6, but not by much, right? We wanted a, a slimmer round and we wanted to make it fully automatic. But if, if it's uncontrollable on fully automatic, then you might as well go back to the M1 and start over. So the M14 was actually developed to replace four different weapons, right? And these are all classics. The M1 Garand, the M3 submachine gun, the M1 carbine, and the M1918 BAR, B-A-R, Browning Automatic Rifle, which is iconic. All these are great weapons. So the M14 was actually supposed to replace all of these weapons. The idea behind this was that the Army wanted to simplify the logistical problem of having all these different calibers, right? So they wanted to simplify the logistical requirements of the troops in the field by reducing the types of ammunition it needed to resupply them, right? So they figured, look, if we can make one caliber across the board, we can really simplify our logistics. We can make resupply and inventory so much more simple, so much more efficient and so much faster. However, this is an, an impossible task. Like it's impossible. You can't just make one caliber across the board. That's not gonna happen. That's not realistic and it failed. So the M14 was deemed completely inferior to even the World War II style M1 Garand in a September 1962 report by the U.S. Department of Defense Comptroller. The M14, however, remained the primary infantry rifle in Vietnam until it was finally replaced by the M16 in 1967. Further procurement of the M14 was abruptly halted in 1968 due to a report of the DOD stating that the AR-15, which is later would later become the M16 that the AR-15 was also superior to the M14 so not only was the World War II weapons better than the M14 but the new weapon was better than the M14 so the army decided to stop getting more M14s right they weren't going to order anymore and they were going to switch over to the M16 the M16 was ordered as a replacement by the Secretary of Defense in 1964 after a series of tests conducted by the U.S. Army. Some disgruntled troops managed to hang on to their M14s while criticizing the early model M16 as frail and as underpowered 
They called them Mattel toys. Mattel was a very popular toy manufacturer. They made kids toys, like, you know, BB rifles, air rifles, stuff like that. The soldiers that were used to the hard-hitting M14, they saw these light, flimsy, tiny little guns with tiny little bullets as flimsy little toys, right? Oh, these are just toys. They ain't going to stop nobody. And the pr another problem was that the M16, they tended to jam a lot and had a ton of malfunctions in the early version. So it almost, in the beginning, felt like the troops' complaints were actually valid. Like, I know our M14 sucked, but at least it's better than these pieces of crap. Like... Why do you keep making our problems worse? It's bad enough we're in this hot, sweaty, disgusting environment fighting these fanatical enemies. But now you're giving us inferior weapons that always jam. No good. In late 1967, the U.S. Army designated the M16 as the standard A rifle. So that is the standard rifle for the military, the M16. It became that in 1967. The M... The M14 remained the standard rifle for basic training, which makes absolutely no sense. How are you going to adopt the M16 on the front lines, on the battle lines, but the soldiers that are training for battle aren't even using it in training? Makes no sense. I, I've been in the Army and the military long enough. I've been you know, around military folks. I have military friends long enough to know that the military, when they try to fix a problem, they usually mess it up really bad at first. And make it worse until finally, you know, someone has to die in order for them to be like, hmm, maybe we need to change something. It's a, it's a mess. Anyway, so this concludes part one of the podcast. Ah, we're good. We're at 29 minutes. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. So today's, remember, today's podcast is entitled Battlefield Bloodlines. We're talking the M14, the predecessor to the M16. Thank you so much for joining us. We love y'all. Thank you to all my international listeners. Thank you so much. Remember, rate, review, subscribe. Everything helps. We're trying to get back on track in 2022. This minor inconvenience, this bump in the road is not going to stop us. God bless y'all. Stay safe. Ape out. Have a safe and blessed weekend. Ape.